Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to the Science of Success with your host, Matt Bonner. Welcome to the Science of Success. I'm your host, Matt Bodner. I'm an entrepreneur and investor in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm obsessed with the mindset of success and the psychology of performance. I've read hundreds of books, conducted countless hours of research and study, and I'm going to take you on a journey into the human mind and what makes peak performers tick. With a focus on always having our discussions rooted in psychological research and scientific fact, not opinion. In this episode, We dig into a massive framework for answering some of the biggest questions in life. Ask if it's possible to integrate 50,000 years of human knowledge into a single comprehensive map of reality. We look at the greatest good that a human being can achieve in their lives. We go deep on the path of waking up offered by thousands of years, hundreds of cultures, and what the clearest and most striking resemblances are on the different paths of enlightenment. We discuss how to integrate and understand the connections between art, morality, and science, and much more with our guest, Ken Wilbur. The Science of Success continues to grow with more than 950,000 downloads, listeners in over 100 countries hitting number one new and noteworthy, and more. I get listener comments and emails all the time asking me, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this incredible information? A lot of our listeners are curious how I keep track of all the incredible knowledge I get from reading hundreds of books, interviewing amazing experts, listening to awesome podcasts, and more. Because of that, we've created an epic resource just for you, a detailed guide called How to Organize and Remember Everything. And you can get it completely for free by texting the word SMARTER to the number 44222. Again, it's a guide we created called How to Organize and Remember Everything. All you have to do to get it is to text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or go to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and put in your email. 
In our previous episode, we examined how mindfulness practices developed independently in cultures across the world, discussed how evolution shaped our brains to focus on survival instead of happiness and fulfillment. We ask, what is success? How do we define it? What is the failure of success? And we go deep into how to practice self-compassion and much more with Dr. Ronald Siegel. To learn proven strategies for mindfulness and self-compassion, listen to that episode. Lastly, if you want to get all this incredible information, links, transcripts, everything we're going to talk about in this show, be sure to check out our show notes. Just go to scienceofsuccess.co and hit the show notes button at the top. Today, we have another exciting guest on the show. Ken Wilbur. Ken is the founder of the Integral Institute, which serves as a think tank aiming to synthesize all human experience and knowledge. He has been called the Einstein of consciousness and is the author of over 20 books with a focus on transpersonal psychology, including A Brief History of Everything, The Integral Vision, and Sex, Ecology, and Spirituality, as well as many other books. Ken, welcome to the Science of Success. Uh, It's great to be here. I'm a fan of the show and delighted to be on. We're so excited to have you on today. So for listeners who may not be familiar with you and your story, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, sure. I started out and went to – I'm a child of the 60s, and so I tried – it was a product of that time. But I also went to a standard university, started at Duke University in the in medical program, and then ended up switching to biochemistry and, and got graduate degrees in biochemistry. But I found out that those really weren't addressing the the major questions that I had uh, about my life, which are all the, the, the typical questions. You know, who am I really? Why am I here? What's this all about? All those kinds of silly questions. But they were really urgent for me. And so I began what turned out to be kind of a lifelong quest. And I ended up gathering, uh, well, eventually several hundred scholars from around the world and just looking at these fundamental issues. And we wanted to make sure that we got as complete view of this as we could. So we really just put almost every approach that humans have ever come up with on the table and then tried to look at all of them together and see if we could reach some sort of conclusions. And that ended up producing what we call this integral approach or integral meta theory. And it's turned out to have a fair amount of impact around the world. And I think if nothing else, it showed people that we really can build bigger pictures that fit our, our knowledge disciplines together. And we don't just have to specialize and end up knowing sort of more and more about less and less. So that's a great kind of intro into sort of the very high level of, of integral theory. And I know it's a massively, massively deep and expansive topic. I, for, for listeners who, who may not have, have read into it or, or read any of your books, how would you define sort of integral theory and what are a few of the sort of fundamental tenets? Sure. Well, I can. One of the things that's so interesting is as we started looking into all the various areas, all the things that human beings have called knowledge. Uh, you know, going back 50,000 years. What was so surprising is how, what what a vast and rich area it is, and really how how little most of it is is known. And because some of the stuff turned out to be absolutely crucial. So we've been doing this, myself and a team of scholars have been looking at these issues for really about the past 40 years or so now. And first, we just looked at all of the areas that human beings have investigated during 
basically their entire history on the planet, scientific, spiritual, historical, artistic, moral, psychological, cultural, and so on. So in other words, we looked at all of the various maps of reality that humans have created during pre-modern times and modern times and postmodern times. And we put them, really several thousand major maps, all on the table next to each other, as it were. And then second, we attempted to integrate them. That is, we used all of them to fill in the gaps in any of them. And the result was a really, really comprehensive map, a sort of super map, if you will, that really covered all or almost all of the major bases of, of humanity's knowledge quest through the years. So the result is what we ended up calling integral meta theory. And what it did was try to identify the sort of really crucial components of all of these many maps of reality that human beings have created. And this gave us a framework, which usually just called the integral framework, that includes these crucial central elements. And these are the elements that you want to include if you want your approach to reality to really be inclusive, comprehensive, and touch most of the important bases. And that sounds a little abstract right now, but I'll, I'll actually give some very specific examples in just one moment. So then using this integral framework, we found that you could see many various ways that humans have approached their lives and their realities with different goals in mind. And all of them have some degree of importance. They're all real. They all exist. And any of us right now can pursue any of them if we become aware of them, if we discover that they actually do exist. So, for example, people can engage in what we call showing up, in cleaning up, in growing up, and in waking up, just to name a few. But these all cover different areas of reality. And again, most people don't even know these areas are there and that you can pursue them. But almost all of them have an absolutely direct bearing on your life as you're living it right now and what you consider yourself, what you consider important, what you consider goals or draws. And again, what's so amazing about all these various areas is that most people are just completely unaware that they exist. Even knowledge experts who might know all about one of them are almost all totally ignorant about the others. It's actually kind of alarming because as we'll, as we'll see soon, each of these areas covers some truly crucial information about humans themselves and the realities that they have access to, if they're aware of them. Now, if we take an integral approach, of course, then we take all of these areas into account. And this is why integral approaches to a topic are so, well, uh, sort of revolutionary, as I'll try to demonstrate. But they are some of the first truly inclusive and comprehensive approaches to virtually any issue. And so far, over 60 human disciplines have been completely reinterpreted from an integral perspective. So we have, for example, integral business, integral education, integral leadership, integral ecology, integral politics, integral therapy, integral art, integral spirituality, and so on. And in each case, the results are, are just much more satisfactory. So I thought one of the things we could do is just focus on two of these goal-driven activities, what we're calling waking up and growing up. 
and simply show what's involved here with an integral approach so people can start to get a sense about, about what it means. And these two activities are particularly interesting because they deal directly with human growth and development itself. So if you take up any of these practices yourself in either growing up or waking up, it would be called a sort of self-improvement course. In other words, if you want to better yourself, these two paths, waking up and growing up, are two of the most central, most significant, and most important paths that human beings have advanced anywhere. And yet, neither the average person nor the typical academic knows anything about either one of them. Again, it's really astonishing. So we can maybe start with waking up, and I'll try to make very clear what I mean here, and I'll give some experiential exercises so you can get a real sense about what this is talking about. But this is a core path that we find going back at least 50,000 years to the earliest shamans and their vision quests. The idea itself is actually quite controversial. And it has been controversial in almost every culture where it's been introduced throughout history. It's been met with fear, avoidance, resentment, aggression, violence. Indeed, hundreds of thousands of human beings have been murdered because of this topic. But the idea itself is, is, is quite simple. Human beings are said to have at least two major but very different states of consciousness or states of being that they can inhabit. One is the typical, normal, everyday, conventional state or sense of self. This is often called the ego or the separate self-sense. And the idea is that what we usually take ourselves to be, each of us, is an egoic separate self. We're identified with this single individual biological body. It was born at a particular time. It will exist for several decades, and then it will die, and that's it. That's pretty much all we are. Human beings come into life, exist a while, gather a few things, suffer enormously, then die, and that's it. But then humans are said also to have another state of being, or in a sense, a higher self. This self is actually one with all of existence. It's one with the entire world. And its discovery marks the profound shift in consciousness and shift in identity from the skin encapsulated ego to an identity with spirit itself or with the ground of all being, a state of being one with literally the entire world. Now, many writers say that leading edge science itself, modern physics and the system sciences, are making exactly this discovery that every individual thing and event is actually interwoven with the entire universe in a seamless whole. But it's important to realize that this waking up is an actual and direct experience, not just an idea or a theory. So historically, the discovery of this higher self or this true self was called enlightenment, awakening, moksha, satori, metamorphosis, the supreme identity, the great liberation. And it was universally held to be the summum bonum, the greatest good that a human being could achieve, the ultimate answer to questions like, who am I and why am I here? So the pursuit of that path is what we call waking up. And waking up is a metaphor that's widely used around the world by these traditions to try and indicate what this enlightenment experience is like. And what it's like, is just as if you awakened from a dream and realized it wasn't really real. 
to wake up in this life is to be awakened, enlightened, and to realize who and what you really are. You are not this illusory, dreamlike, separate, and isolated ego self. You're actually interwoven with and directly one with the entire universe in all its many dimensions. Awakened from the dream, you are this supreme identity. All of the goals and of all of the goals around the world that humans have sought, this is probably the highest or, or, or the most ultimate. And we're starting to see an increased interest in this path in the West. And we have, to some degree, since around the 60s, when the introduction of Eastern meditative traditions made the very existence of the path of waking up more obvious. As I said, there's a, a strong interest nowadays in trying to show that leading edge sciences are reaching the same conclusion as these ancient paths of, of waking up. But as I'll try to address, there's, there's a grain of truth in that notion, but there's also a kind of major glitch that stops it from being an unalloyed truth. But what is undeniably true is that of those people who have had this direct and immediate waking up or satori or enlightenment experience, well over 90% of them say that it's the most real, the most absolute experience that they've ever had. And it showed them a reality whose existence they, they simply couldn't deny. One of the most recent got a fair amount of attention in the news, but it's very typical. But the example is Dr. Edmund Alexander, who's actually a neuroscientist from Harvard, and he had this experience and called it, quote, by far the most ultimately real I've, I've ever had. So that's just kind of a generic introduction to, to what we call this path of waking up. And we do find them in cultures around the world going back like I say, at least 50,000 years, they tended to drop off with the rise of the modern era and sort of continue the discussion headed in that direction. I'll, I'll give a brief explanation of why they tended to drop off in the modern era. And this actually has to do with the other path we're going to talk about, which is called growing up. So, uh, but to give a, an indication about what, what these waking up paths are actually like. In other words, what do you experience when you have an enlightenment experience? And so what I'm going to do here is give a very simplified, very shortened exercise that hopefully will give at least a little experiential hint of what these paths are pointing to. So we mentioned that virtually all of, of the waking up paths make a distinction between the ordinary or typical self the ego or the separate self-sense, and our true self or real self, which actually reaches far beyond this individual organism and is one of the entire ground of, of all being itself. So how can we get at least a, a little taste of what that means? We can start by just having you simply describe inwardly what it is that you basically call this self of yours. Just very simply, who are you? Make a list of the things that you are. So you might say, my name is so-and-so, I'm this old, I weigh this many pounds, I'm this tall, I went to school here, I have this degree, I'm in a relationship now for five years, I don't have any kids, I work at this job, my hobbies are this, I drive this car, I like this kind of music, these types of books, and so on and so on. And that's fine. I mean, you could go on and on like that. But notice when you're doing that, there are actually two selves involved. One is the self that you can see, the self that you were indeed just describing, the self that can be an object of awareness. But the other self is the self that's doing the describing. 
the self that's doing the seeing, it's not a seen self, it's the seer. And the seer can no more see itself than a tongue could taste itself or an eye could see itself. So what is this observing self, the real seer? What is that? As you look for this true seer, this real self, you won't see anything. If you see anything, that's just another object, another seen thing. It's not the real seer or the true subject or the real self. Rather, as you look for this real seer and you continually realize that anything you can see is not it, is not the real seer, all you start to notice is a sense of vast freedom, a sense of almost complete release. It's along the lines of, I see that mountain, but I'm not that mountain. I'm free of it. I have these sensations, but I'm not these sensations. I'm free of them. I have these feelings, but I'm not these feelings. I'm free of them. I have these thoughts, but I'm not these thoughts. I'm free of them. So I am what remains, a vast, pure, empty opening or clearing in which all these objects are arising. And I'm free of all of them. I'm a pure witness. I'm a pure awareness itself, not any content of awareness. This is why the discovery of this radically free awareness is called the great liberation, or in Sanskrit, moksha, which means freedom. Now, this real self is just a sense of pure I amness. So it's not I am this or I am that, not I am this body or I am this person, but just pure I amness before it's identified with any object or thing. This I amness is radically free from the entire stream of time. It's the pure witness, which is aware of time, aware of a past, a present, and a future, but is itself radically timeless. It lives in what's called not the passing present, but the timeless present or the timeless now moment. As Wittgenstein put it, if we take eternity to mean not everlasting temporal duration, but a moment without time, then eternal life belongs to those who live in the present, right? The timeless or eternal present, the now moment. This is exactly what Christ meant when he said, before Abraham was, I am. Zen has a a famous koan, which says, show me your original face. Original face means your true self, this real seer. Show me your original face, the face you had before your parents were born. Now, that's not a metaphor. That's not symbolic. They mean literally and directly. Your true self, your original face, your real I amness is indeed timeless or eternal. And so it existed before your parents were born, not because it existed in a time before your parents, but because it doesn't enter the stream of time at all. It exists in this timeless now witnessing this present moment prior to the unfolding of time in the temporal stream entirely. So this I amness is, is an ever-present or, or timeless reality. It's always there, whether you realize it or not. The great traditions actually maintain that this ever-present I amness, this ongoing witness, is the only constant and always present experience that you'll ever have. So you probably can't remember exactly what you were doing at this time a week ago. But one thing is certain, your I amness was there. And you probably can't remember what you were doing a year ago or a decade ago. 
But Iamnes was there still as an ever-present, changeless, pure witness, empty of any content. And you can't remember what you were doing before your parents were born either. But I am this is still timeless or eternal. In other words, I am this doesn't enter the stream of time. And so it still is right now eternal or free of temporal duration, as, as Wittgenstein pointed out. And every mystic the world over agrees with that. Oh, you can't remember what you were doing a century ago or a millennia ago. But that which is prior to time is still prior to any of that time. And so eternity is still eternity. And this is why the true self is everywhere called unborn and undying. It's unborn because it doesn't have a beginning in time. It's ever present. And it's undying because since it never entered the stream of time, it never leaves it either. That is, it never stops. It never dies. Unborn, undying. So if you really push into this ever-present witness or, or true I amness, or timeless now, at some point you'll fully break into the real timeless now, and your original face will, will become as obvious to you as, as clear sunlight on a summer day. And that experience is what's called enlightenment or awakening or satori, the great liberation, the supreme identity. And virtually everybody who's ever had this profound experience agrees that it, it is indeed the sumum bonum, the supreme good of, of a human life. So that's the path of waking up. And what we found is we were sort of looking at all the maps of the territory of waking up that had been offered over thousands of years around the world by human beings in hundreds of different cultures, is that there is a great deal of similarity between these meditative maps. So scholars such as Daniel P. Brown and Dustin DePerna have examined dozens and dozens of the various contemplative and meditative paths left by the various traditions. And they find a striking degree of similarity in virtually all of them. The quick little exercise I just gave about the witness was just an attempt to give at least a, a bit of a tongue taste of what's involved here. But what scholars have found is that as they look at all of the various traditions around the world, as they look at the stages of Buddhist mindfulness, of Vedanta Hinduism's five levels of meditation, Zen Buddhism's 10 ox herding pictures, Jewish Kabbalah's seven levels, the tree of life, uh, the Christian mystics, uh, centering prayer, or St. Teresa's seven interior castles, the Sufi stages of spiritual states, all of these paths of waking up describe a quite similar path of higher and higher states of awareness, leading from the ego or separate self-sense at one end to the timeless, eternal, ever-present, true seer or pure witness or core I amness or real self, the supreme identity at the other. This is really one of the most significant discoveries that humanity has, has ever made, and its existence certainly should be made known to every human being on the planet and should be part of any truly, truly liberal education. So one of the reasons that things like mindfulness have become so popular in the West is that mindfulness is a good example of a practice that was originally created about 2,000 years ago, specifically for waking up. Its ultimate aim is to free a person from their limited identity with a fragmented world of samsara and the egoic self 
which is inherently linked with suffering and pain and agony, and open them to their real identity in nirvana. That is a totally unified, whole, integrated awareness, one with the entire world, one with the ground of all being, its ever-present spirit or self or witness. And the path towards that ultimate enlightenment includes practicing mindfulness, which is simply a technique for resting in the witness. It's a technique for being aware of each moment, seeing it as an object, and thus ceasing to identify with it as a subject. So our real awareness is, in Sanskrit, is called nete nete. Not this, not that. I have feelings, but I'm not those feelings. I have thoughts, but I'm not those thoughts. And so the more we practice mindfulness, the more we practice remembering the witness, then the more distance we get from, the more we cease to identify with our present stream of experience, our anxieties and pains and depressions, the more we become awareness and not any content of awareness. So the more open and free and clear and, and creative we, we become, the closer we get to a pure I amness, which is awakening to a really radical freedom. Now, this isn't anything like the typical religion that Westerners are mostly aware of, which is some sort of mythic story that you're supposed to agree with. And if you do, you get to live forever in a mythic heaven with all the other really boring people in the world. This isn't a mythic belief system. These paths of waking up, whether we find them in the East or the West, are psychotechnologies of consciousness transformation. And that's the crucial path of, of waking up. So I wanted to get to growing up, and I, I would start by saying there's just one little problem with the path of, of waking up. And it actually turns out to be a, a truly significant, almost deal-breaking problem. And this does indeed have to do with the, with the path of growing up. But I just wanted to make sure, I know I've, I've been talking uh, pretty constantly here. If, uh, if there are any, any big questions. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hiring the right person takes time. Time 
that you often don't have. But you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidates for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. In fact, I was on LinkedIn Jobs this morning looking for candidates to fill a key role in one of my businesses. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with hard and soft skills you're looking for so that you can hire the right person quickly. You can look for things like collaboration, creativity, and adaptability, looking beyond just work skills and resumes to connect you with the candidates who are a perfect match for your business. That's how LinkedIn makes sure that your job post gets in front of the people you actually want to hire because they have a much better ability to get a deep insight into exactly who is the right candidate for you and your business. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com slash success. Again, that's linkedin.com slash success to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Are we okay? How are we doing here? Yeah, this is this is great, and and I mean, there's there's so many things I want to ask about before we dig into the concept of growing up, which I definitely want to talk about, and I also want to hear your thoughts about the the kind of the the problem or the the tension between growing up and waking up. I'm, yeah, I, I wanted to 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 kind of suss out one of the core tenets of integral theory that that informs both your your sort of deep study of, you know, 50,000 years of human history and integrating yeah. all of these different traditions is the really simple kind of one of the starting points that you have is the idea that everybody is right. Will you share that concept and how that has helped inform the creation of integral theory? And sure. Well, yeah. Well, that was the driving point. I mean, if you think about it, one of the ways that, that I sometimes put this is no human brain is capable of producing 100 percent error. It just it can't function if that's all it did. I sometimes say nobody's smart enough to be wrong all the time. And so there has to be some partial truth in virtually every concept, notion, idea that human beings have had. And so even if we say, well, okay, at, you know, there was a time when everybody thought the earth was flat and the sun went around the earth and so on. And we can say, well, you know, that, that there were some problems with that. We can say, well, yes, that's true. But it, there's a whole school of philosophy called phenomenology. And that says you just bracket what's arising in your awareness. Don't try to decide whether it's empirically true or not. Just look at it as a phenomena itself. Look at it just as it's arising on its own. And if you do that and you sit outside and look at the heavens, that's exactly what it looks like. The earth does look flat. It doesn't look like a globe. And it does look like the sun and the moon go around the earth. I mean, those are phenomenologically accurate. So the question then becomes, okay, how would have to be the overall situation in a, in a worldview or in, in a person's overall understanding where they would see the world from just that perspective. And if we do that, then we find that indeed humanity, as do individual humans, go through a process of evolution. They go through a process of indeed what we'll call growing up. They grow and evolve through various stages, various epochs, various eras of development. And when they do, what they're seeing in those epochs is true for that time. And it makes sense if you go back and look at it from that perspective. 
And so if we do that and then put all of these perspectives together, then we don't just say, okay, which one is right and all the others are wrong. We say, no, wait, each of these was right at its own place and its own time as it unfolded. Now, this actually turns out to be important because those previous eras that humans existed 5,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, those turn out to be epics that are reproduced, if you will, in the worldviews of infants as they grow up today. So if we look at the great stages of human development, Gene Gepser is one of the geniuses in this, and he outlined the stages of overall development. He's just broad generalizations that human beings have gone through over the past 500,000 years. And he termed these epics the archaic, the magic, the mythic, the rational, the pluralistic, and the integral. Now, as it turns out, those stages are exactly the major stages of growth and development that an individual goes through from birth to day. Individuals are born the first year or so of life. They have an archaic worldview. From about years one to three, they have a very magical primary process view of the world. Then emerging around ages five, six, seven, they start to get a very mythic view of the world. And the various developmental schools of psychology that that look at these early stages of development all agree with these different sort of early worldviews unfolding in that way. And then around adolescence, a rational capacity emerges. And this is associated also with the age, the rise of modernity and the Western Enlightenment. It was called the age of reason and revolution. And then if you look at the pluralistic or relativistic worldview, that's associated with with postmodernism. And then we're right on the edge now where we're starting to look back on all of these previous stages of development and realizing that all of them are parts of an overall path of human growth and development. So all of them are partially right during the ages that they emerge. And as it turns out, a human being can stop at almost any one of those stages. So we have grown men and women today who are 20 and 30 and 40 years old, many of whom are still at a magic stage. Others are at a mythic stage. Others are at a rational stage. Others at pluralistic. So all of us, and we realize this is going to go on forever. But that overall view is, is starting to be known as the integral view. Because whereas all of those previous stages think that their view and their view, truth, and values are the only real truth and values in the whole world, the actual integral stage of development, which is only a couple of decades old now, but people at that stage of development start to view all of the previous stages as being important. So that changes everything. We've never had a a stage of development that thought other stages were important. So if you were at a mythic, traditional, mythic, literal, uh, standard view from this stage is things like you believe the Bible is the literal word of God. All of its myths are absolutely true. They're scientific facts. That's a typical, it's called mythic, literal stage of development. And if you're at that stage of development, you, you probably belong to a fundamentalist school of one of the world's great religions. And this is also called an ethnocentric stage of development because it believes that its special group are chosen people, are the one and only people that, that are chosen by God. And interestingly, about 60% of the world's population are at an ethnocentric, mythic, literal stage of development. 
But then as you rise up into a modern or rational stage of development, then you expand from ethnocentric to world-centric. And so world-centric is uh, believes not that just my special group alone should be given preference, but that all people should be treated fairly, regardless of race, color, sex, or creed. That was a huge move historically for human beings, but it was a move from ethnocentric orientations to world-centric orientation. Now, this actually was a specific shift in our history because, believe it or not, that shift didn't occur until a couple hundred years ago. I mean, human beings have been on this planet for close to a million years, and it wasn't until a few hundred years ago that we actually figured out slavery was morally objectionable. And so in a 100-year period, from around 1770 to 1870, slavery was outlawed by every rational, industrial, modern nation on the face of the planet. First time that it ever happened. Even indigenous tribes had slavery. Even all of the cultures where the great religions first arose had slavery. St. Paul counsels slaves to accept Jesus and serve your master joyously. The great traditions that produced Zen Buddhism and Vedanta Hinduism still had slavery. So they were good at waking up, but that didn't mean they were good at growing up. Growing up is that process of going through those stages of individual evolution and development. And it turns out that waking up and growing up are two very different things. You can be very high in one and not very high in the other. And so most common is historically, most of the people who had waking up or enlightenment experiences were also ethnocentric. So they existed in cultures that had slavery. And most of the slaves were different ethnic tribes. So in other words, they, they were racist. They were all patriarchal. In other words, they were sexist. And they were all ethnocentric. So even though they were awakening to this ground of being, this one with all beings, they're racist, sexist, ethnocentric. That's because even though they were advanced in waking up, they weren't that advanced in growing up. They're at a mythic, ethnocentric stage of development. And it wasn't until we get to the modern rational, world-centric stage of development that sexism started to be called out. We started to get the women's movements. And so we have in today's world where to be sexist is to be charged with a very serious offense. Of course, to be racist is to be criminal. This is new to humanity. This is a product of a very high stage of growing up. Now, the problem is each stage has you know, both its pluses and its minuses, of course. One of the problems with the modern rational stage as it emerged, and it outlawed slavery, it overthrew monarchy, it, there were the French and American revolutions trying to introduce democracy. All of that was good. But what was problematic is they looked at the previous era, the mythic ethnocentric stage of, of the great mythic religions, and they threw out all of them. And so... They got rid of racism, but they also threw out enlightenment, meaning waking up. And they got rid of sexism, but they threw out awakening. And they went from ethnocentric to world-centric, but they tossed out the great liberation. And so that's problematic, is that we tended to lose access to those very esoteric schools of spirituality that had uh, advanced quite far. Now, those were usually a small portion of, of the culture. And they were often differentiated from the great mythic exoteric religions. So in the great 
Catholic religion, for example, most of the followers are believing in, in their dogmatic myths. I believe Jesus Christ is the one and only biological son of the one and only God, and then you get to go to heaven. But a very small number of them were contemplative schools of development, and they were interested in waking up. Problem is, the modern world didn't differentiate between those two, and it threw out all of them. And so we lost access to this extraordinary road to ultimate reality and to our, our ultimate identity with this ground of all being. So it, what we say when we say everybody's right is we have to go back and look at all of the truths that humanity came up with over its entire history, because those turn out in some cases to not only have truths that are still true today, like waking up, but they end up embodying worldviews that are still true today as people are born at square one. And have to move through archaic to magic to mythic to rational to pluralistic to integral stages of development. And so we still have, well, a, a recent study in this country, America, showed that three out of five people, 60%, were still at ethnocentric or lower. Hell, we just elected a president who's ethnocentric. He's mythic literal. He is racist, sexist, misogynistic, xenophobic. I mean, God bless him, but that's not the highest we can aim for right now. The way he's seeing the world is exactly the way the world looks at that stage of development. And that's why you can't challenge him about those. And that's why he's immune to so-called facts. But we find this is true for every stage of development. So one of the things that we do with an integral point of view is we say, okay, if we're approaching any topic, like how should we do marketing for business? We have to look not only at just, you know, doing market surveys and, and all of that, but we have to realize, look at what level of development the different markets are. Because somebody who's at a magic stage of development, somebody who's at a mythic stage of development, somebody who's at a rational stage of development, somebody at a pluralistic postmodern stage, somebody at an integral stage, have very different drives, very different needs, very different motivations. We have empirical research on all of this. And they're going to respond very, very differently to marketing plans. And so you want to know what you're doing. Because what most people do in terms of marketing is they'll come up with a particular marketing plan. And it it's usually comes from the level of development that they themselves are at. And they will appeal to people at that one level. But they'll turn off people at the other six or seven levels of development. And so you have you need to know what you're doing. And we find this true at, at virtually any discipline. There are, if you're looking, for example, at, at spirituality, if you're looking at faith, we have empirical studies now showing that human beings go through around six or seven stages of faith. And those stages are essentially variations on archaic stage, a magic stage, a mythic stage, rational stage, a pluralistic stage, and integral stage. Their spirituality looks different at every stage, completely different. And so if somebody's at a magic stage of development, they're in it for the miracles. They want to watch Jesus walk on water. They want to see loaves turned into fishes and water turned into wine. They want to see the dead raised to be living. They want to live forever in a, in a magical heaven. As they move in, into mythic and they get a more extensive cognitive 
orientation. Then they want to, they start looking for things that are true, that are eternally true. So they start looking at God's commandments and things that are important like that. And they realize that they have to follow these commandments if they want to fit in and be saved, basically, by God himself. And what this is really doing is moving into just a whole dimension of reality that has rules and, and regulations and that human beings have to adapt to. And this is an entirely appropriate move at that stage of development to do that. You still think very much in mythic terms. So you think all of the myths in the Bible are literally true. And you think Jesus was the one and only biological son of the one and only God. Now, when you move to a world-centric, rational stage, then you'll start to say, well, okay, wait a minute. There are all these other world religions and all these other world teachers, and I can't have the only one. That's right. I'm going to have a more world-centric point of view, a more universal point of view. So all of a sudden, we're not the only chosen people. Now, I happen to relate to Jesus Christ, so I'm allowed to accept him as my teacher, but I can recognize there are other great world teachers as well. And so I can recognize that Buddha had, had important truths and Shankara had important truths and so on. Now, interestingly, the Catholic Church itself, for the first time in its entire history, at Vatican II, announced that, quote, paraphrasing, we recognize that a comparable salvation can be had by other world religions. So for the first time in their entire history, they acknowledged that they didn't have the one and only true way. So they moved from ethnocentric to world-centric. And that's exactly what has to happen because, again, with sort of 60 to 70 percent of the world's population at ethnocentric levels of development, anything resembling world peace is categorically not possible under those circumstances. And yet that dimension of things is not looked at at all. We look at it in terms of, oh, well, we have to do economic things to help the world, or, oh, we have to do technological things, or, oh, we have to do political things. But nobody looks at these interior dimensions where you find both waking up and growing up. And, of course, we have a lot of other dimensions in, in integral as well. We look at cleaning up, which has to do with things like shadow elements, and we look at things like showing up, which has to do with all the different sorts of dimensions of reality that we have. But the guiding light in all of this is that there's some degree of truth in virtually every approach to reality you look at. And so the question is no longer which approach is right and all the others are wrong. The real question is how can all of these approaches fit together? What framework can we adopt that actually embraces all of them and they can all fit together in a coherent fashion? That's what reality looks like. And if we're not doing that, we're really not chasing reality. We're just chasing we're chasing a narrow, partial, fragmented, broken part of reality. And that's that's a no-go. But that's still what most of our professions do. So what almost all of our disciplines do. But we clearly find that to be a very limited approach. And it certainly makes a difference as you start applying this in your life and how you live. The one of the one of the key components that I think is really important to understand in, in this whole sort of looking at the different levels of development is the idea that hierarchies do exist, but that they right. don't necessarily equate to moral superiority and that each hierarchy to evolve has to sort of transcend and include the the levels below it. Could you talk a little bit about that idea? Sure. Well, one of the problems with just the whole postmodern movement in general, and postmodernism was named because it came after modernity. 
and modernity generally means the period starting around 1600, 1700 in the West, where we had the rise of almost all the modern sciences, modern chemistry, modern biology, modern physics, modern astronomy, and so on. And we had so-called Western Enlightenment, which is called the Age of Reason, because it moved primarily into using rationality and scientific investigation instead of simply mythic revelations. And so that was a profound period in human development, obviously. And because it was thinking in sort of third-person rational terms, then it, it tended to think in terms of universal realities. And so that's why it looked at human beings as universal individuals. So they had universal rights. Not just rights if you were a Catholic or rights if you were a Jew or rights if you belong to this race or this group or that class and so on. But what you rights that you had is just being a human being, a universal human being. That's why slavery was ended and so on. Now, there were downsides, as I said, with, with each era. And one of the downsides with the modern era is that it just pushed rationality itself too hard. So even in the in the great distinction of the good, the true, and the beautiful, the true was represented by rational, objective truth. But the good was moral reasoning and moral judgment, and beautiful was aesthetic judgments. And rationality ended up sort of pushing all of those out the window. And so we started to get what what's called not just science, but scientism, or often called scientific materialism, where all of the interior realities, consciousness, awareness, morals, uh, emotions, and so on, were thought not to be really real. Just what can be rationally and objectively observed in a scientific experiment is real. And that pretty much came down to just material atoms. Almost everything else is denied reality. So the rise of postmodernism, which really started around the 1960s, and it was it started as first of all it was a, a higher level of growth it was a, a pluralistic stage which was a stage that became aware of the previous rational stage and found some of its limitation and so that's why it's generally called postmodernism it's also called postrationalism it came after rationality and attempted to open it up and that's why also we started to get what's called multiculturalism where it's understood that not just Western Eurocentric culture has the only real truths, but cultures all over the planet have their own unique truths, and they need to be honored as well. And so we got the whole civil rights movement. We got the whole the acceleration of, of personal and professional feminism. We got the whole environmental movement and so on. But one of the problems with, with the pluralistic or postmodern stage was because it started to try and sort of include everything, but it didn't make distinctions. It, it didn't, in other words, if you're looking at, as, let's say, being inclusive as being a good thing, which postmodernism did, it didn't look at the fact that there are stages of inclusiveness. And each stage gets more and more and more inclusive. And conversely, the lower stages are actually less inclusive. There's actually some problems with those. They tend to be egocentric and ethnocentric. They're not world-centric. But postmodernism came short of making that distinction. And the reason is they confused the types of hierarchies. Postmodernists thought that all hierarchies were dominator hierarchies. Dominator hierarchies are like the caste system 
or criminal organizations, the higher you go in that hierarchy, the more people you can oppress, the more people you can dominate. And the postmodernists thought that all hierarchies, all ranking, all levels of any sort of ranking were dominator hierarchies. They were all oppressive and they all caused enormous social suffering and social ills. They didn't distinguish between dominator hierarchies and growth hierarchies. Growth hierarchies, each higher level is more inclusive and less domineering, not the other way around. It's just the opposite of domineering hierarchies. So a typical growth hierarchy, uh, we see in evolution itself. We go from quarks to atoms to molecules to cells to organisms. Each one of those transcends but includes the previous one. It doesn't oppress it. Molecules don't hate atoms. Molecules are not domineering atoms. They're embracing them. They actually include them. If anything, they love them. So most of the developmental schemes we're talking about, archaic, magic, mythic, rational, and so on, and most of the developmental schemes that, that developmental psychology looks at, those are all growth hierarchies. And it's only at the higher stages of growth hierarchies that you overcome dominator hierarchies. So all growth hierarchies move from egocentric to ethnocentric to world-centric to integrated. And it's only at world-centric that you stop wanting to domineer and dominate. And so the only cure for dominator hierarchy is a high level of growth hierarchy. People at low levels of growth hierarchies use dominator hierarchies. And then even then, in growth hierarchies, as you're saying, you have to be careful because simply the fact that you have a higher level, and higher simply means like atoms, molecules, cells, it means that the cognitive structure of a higher level includes all of the components of the previous level, but then adds something extra. And therefore, it's bigger, it's wider, it's higher, whatever term you want, but it doesn't always necessarily mean it's better. Because this higher stage can still make mistakes, it can still create problems, it can still deny, or if it has in, in a psychological being, if there are various thoughts or various feelings that you're frightened of or judgmental or afraid of, you can repress them, you can seal them out. And the higher you go, the more capacity you have for doing that, because your cognition gets stronger and stronger. So. Higher not only means higher potential capacities, it also means higher potential problems. But inherently, the problems at one stage are solved only by the next higher stage. And then it introduces its own problems, and those can be solved again at the next higher stage, and so on. So growth hierarchies are one of the most important discoveries that humanity has made. And again, as you look at all the various maps around the world, and look at how they broke down, you can see ones that were dominator hierarchies, and you can see ones that were growth hierarchies. And the growth hierarchies always were involved in creating more moral, more sustainable, more benign, more goodness, more truth, more beauty. And dominator hierarchies were always concerned with oppression and domination and suffering, slavery, and on and on and on. But again, what what been such a problem with postmodernism in the last forty or fifty years since since it, it it came into being with the sixties is that it didn't allow growth hierarchies, 
and it basically denied all hierarchies. And that meant that was ironic because pluralistic postmodernism itself is the result of five or six levels of a growth hierarchy. Nobody's born at pluralism. You're born at archaic, and you have to develop to the hierarchical stages of magic to mythic to rational, finally to pluralistic. So when the pluralists turned around and said, everything's equal, there's nothing but egalitarianism, all values are the same, then they cut out the path of growth to their own level of, of awareness. So they, they killed growth entirely. And that's effectively what we got from postmodernism is it stopped acting as a leading edge in development. And that has been just really kind of a disaster across the board. An enormous number of problems that the world is facing now around the, around the world results from, from, from just that. So what we're trying to do just with sort of integral approach is put all of these things on the table and make sure that we are looking at not just what people say or, or, or the opinions that they have or the, or the beliefs that they hold, but that we also understand the context that those beliefs are coming from, that we take a genealogical approach. That is, we actually look at the genealogy of these ideas at the stages of growth and evolution and development that has occurred. Because evolution seems to touch pretty much everything. And so tracking its stages of evolutionary unfolding becomes really crucial in this whole and this whole approach, again, to virtually any any area we're looking at. So this is this is obviously a, an extremely vast and complicated topic for listeners who want to be able to kind of dig in and and get a little bit deeper into some of the fundamentals of integral theory. Where can they find you online, and, and kind of what's a good starting place? Uh, sure. Well, yeah, I've got got twenty five books, and they're they're all still in print. And you can get any of them on Amazon. Uh, and they've been translated in over 30 foreign languages. So they're, they're pretty widely available. And people can, can just do that. You can also just Google Integral. And you'll get plugged in uh, sort of a worldwide movement that's looking at, at these areas. Website, a place to start might be IntegralLife.com. We throw a pretty wide web there. We include a lot of different approaches. But the core guiding principle of the website is, is the integral view. And there are a lot of discussions and dialogues by me and articles and, and essays and so on. And so people can, can follow up there if they wish. Well, Ken, thank you so much for, for coming on the show and, and sharing all this wisdom. I know that integral theory is such a fascinating concept, the idea of integrating the entire history of human knowledge into right. a cohesive framework to understand and explain reality is a massive undertaking. And I know that in, in, in the limited constraints of a, of a, of a one-hour conversation, there's no way we can even really scratch the surface of it. But I, I think we – I really appreciate you sharing some of these core concepts. And, for, and a, we'll definitely put links to all of your books and everything in the show notes for listeners so they can check those out. Great. Awesome. Thank, yeah, but thank you awesome. very much for being on the show. We really appreciate well, it. Well, thank you, Matt. Thanks, Austin. I, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. Listeners like you are why we do this podcast. The emails and stories we receive from listeners around the globe bring us joy and fuel our mission to unleash human potential. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at scienceofsuccess.co. That's M-A-T-T -T at scienceofsuccess.co. 
I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every listener email. The greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps more and more people discover the science of success. I get a ton of listeners asking, Matt, how do you organize and remember all this information? Because of that, we've created an amazing free guide for all of our listeners. You can get it by texting the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222, or by going to scienceofsuccess.co, that's scienceofsuccess.co, and joining our email list. If you want to get all this incredible information, links, transcripts, everything we talked about in the show, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. Just go to scienceofsuccess.co and hit the show notes button at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.